You're listening to a podcast from Victory. A leader's downfall begins when he exalts himself rather than exalting God. Discover the truth behind the statement in week two of Rise and Fall. We are on our second installment of our series Rise and Fall. We are uh, talking about leadership and I believe this is really an apt uh, series as we prepare for the coming election. How many of you are feeling the campaign fever already? I know that you are in the middle of it. Uh, maybe some of you are already writing your... Uh, how many of you are ready to vote tomorrow? No, I mean just in case tomorrow's election. Are you ready with your candidates? Anyone here? Yes. You've made up your mind already? Yes. Who's saying, no, I don't know what to do? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, whatever it is, uh, I, I trust that God will actually help us. So that's why, you know, uh, all, all across the city, we are actually praying that this particular series will help us in having a lens in the way we look at candidates that when we vote, it's not about just their charisma that we're voting for or their popularity or whether we're, uh, you know, affiliated with them or maybe related to them or maybe we come from the same province. And I realize that here in the Philippines, we are very regionalistic. We are very tribal. You talk about solid north and uh, solid south. And I'm not really sure. Maybe solid uh, Visayas as well. Maybe not really. Uh, but when you talk about Metro Manila and NCR, we're uh, all over the place, Okay. But uh, really, when we um, you know, are, are looking at the candidates that we're going to be looking, and not just about presidentials, but down the line, until uh, you know, we vote for our local officials and vice mayor and councillors, we do hope that you will be able to choose the right people who would lead us. But really, when you talk about leadership, it's not just about people who are leading this nation who are leaders, but every one of us are leaders as well. How many of you agree with me on that? Okay, would you kindly tell the person beside you, you are a leader? Okay, whether you believe it or not, okay, there's actually a book, uh, familiar, an old book that I've read uh, so many years ago by John Maxwell, Developing the Leader Within You. According to one of the chapters of this book or pages, uh, it says here that leadership is about influence, and the sociologists tell us that even the most introverted individual will influence 10,000 other people during his or her lifetime. How many of you are introverts here? Okay, the fact that you're not raising up your hand proves that you are an introvert, okay? But guess what? Even if you are an introvert, you will still influence 10,000 people in your lifetime. How many of you know that's a lot of people? I mean, talking about maybe classmates, teachers, classmates of your classmates, friends of your friends, uh, face, how many of you have Facebook? I think that's about half already. You know, you've probably uh, got half already of the influence uh, in your lifetime uh, and, and other stuff. Maybe whether you're watching a movie, you've, you've influenced someone. You're lining up maybe for a transportation. The, the fact that you're lining up and people follow, how many of you know that is influence? If you're throwing trash in the street and somebody else, is fo- somebody else follows that, how many of you know that is influence? Because people follow you, whether it's actually... You know, something that you think about, whether intentional or unintentional, we are actually leading others. You know, in fact, I, I grew up in BF in Tahanan Village. There's actually an organization or association among the tricycle drivers. Uh, whether you're the president of a TODA or, or the SATA or whatever in, uh, in Paranaque or the president of the Philippines, you know, you are a leader. And the question for us today is not really, are you a leader? But the real question for us is, are you a leader worth following, right? You know, that's the question for us. Are we 
influencing the people around us in a positive way. You know, do you know that as a parent, you are parenting your children whether you're aware of it or not? There's actually positive parenting or negative parenting. Whether you are very intentional in the way you parent your children, in the way they should go, so that when they grow up, they will not depart from it. Or, if you're an absentee parent, you are also parenting your child. Do you know that? You are setting a, an example for them to follow that maybe one day, that's whether, you know, good or, or bad, they will follow that. And so we are all influencers and we are leaders. Yes, we're looking at this election as one of the major uh, points that we will have in this nation. People demand change, right? But the question for us really is, are we willing to change as a people of God as well? And, you know, we, we don't, as, as I said last week, we don't really uh, look at politicians as the answer or the savior of all the problems of this nation. Ultimately, the destiny of this nation rests in the hand of our sovereign Lord and not in the hands of the politicians. Amen. And that's exactly what the message is. But yet, God chooses people to lead us. And many times we get the people or the leaders that we deserve. You know, look at these kinds of leaders, you know, whether it's positive leadership or negative leadership, they are influencing people. Leadership is not just about charisma. For example, if you look at Adolf Hitler, and you're familiar with the story of Adolf Hitler, he's a very charismatic leader. He attracted the young people in Germany and around Europe to follow his ideals or his, you know, whatever, his belief system. And it led to the annihilation of millions of Jews. That is a leader, but is that really a leader worth following? It's not about charisma. I believe when you talk about leadership who will lead this nation, it's more than having the ability to rally people or the charisma to be likable. It's about character. Everybody say character. Character is more important than charisma. And we're going to be looking at that in the next few weeks. As you have seen in the video, we have different titles. Last week we talked about personal sacrifice. We focused on uh, Abimelech, the first and official king of Israel. Today we're going to be looking at the story of King Saul. Last week we talked about Abimelech. You know, he actually killed uh, his brothers, 70 brothers on one stone. You know, and since the others are not willing to sacrifice, he actually took that as a cue for him to lead the nation of Israel violently. Unfortunately, God uh, judged him and he only led that nation for three years. Today we're going to be focusing on King Saul. Uh, big and small is the title. Next week we're going to be looking at uh, King David, success and failures. Uh, and uh, the week after that, his son Solomon about wisdom and folly that though he was the wisest man who ever lived on this, uh, on this earth, uh, he also made a lot of foolish decisions. And last is we're going to be talking about Hezekiah, uh, one of the kings also in the in kings of Judah, who is a good king. Unfortunately, uh, he wasn't able to finish uh, that strong. And so we're going to be focusing on 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, please uh, stand up and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we'll just be reading a few verses from this book. I did actually put this on the keynote as well, and so you may just follow along as I read this text. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 17 to 23. 
And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go. Everybody say, Go. Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. And that was the command. And fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Can we say that statement? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we are so grateful for this afternoon. We ask that you would uh, speak to us. We thank you, Holy Spirit. We acknowledge you as our teacher and our guide. Once again, illuminate your word. And I thank you that, Lord, if we find ourselves in the same boat as Saul, Lord God, I thank you that we will humble ourselves and admit that, Lord God, we thank you for your grace that is so abundant to us. Lord, I pray, God, that you would change your people, Lord God, the way we look at things, our mindset, even our hearts. We ask that you would be glorified this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may all be seated. Moving from the story of Abimelech last uh, week, we uh, are familiar that that was a season or the time of the judges. It was not at the time of kings. And the people were clamoring that uh, Gideon, would actually rule over them in chapter 8 of Judges. And Gideon said this statement, I will not rule over you, nor my son will rule over you, but what? But who? The Lord, everybody say the Lord. The Lord will rule over you. And so what he is saying is, you don't need any human leader because, yeah, yeah, we're leading you in a sense that we're judges, but God is your king. Because Israel is actually set up as a theocratic or theocracy in form of government. There's no one like it. Other nations are monarchs or monarchy uh, in the way they have established their government. And so the people are now clamoring, we want to have kings just like the other nations around us. But God had a plan that he would be their king. And in fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, he finally said, yes to Samuel, because it is not Samuel that they were rejecting, but it is God whom they are rejecting really as king. And so, when the people clamored for a king, basically God gave them the king that they needed at that time. Now, who was this King Saul that we have just read a while ago? And what caused his rise and what also precipitated his fall? In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, this was the qualification of Saul. There was not even a snap election at that time. But basically, God just handpicked this man. And he had a son that was Kish, whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. What a qualification. 
The qualification for this kind of a leader and that the first king of Israel was he was handsome. How many of you are qualified already? Please raise your hand. Isn't that amazing? I mean, talk about, you know, the outward appearance. That's really important. You know, hey, wow, he was handsome. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And the Bible says, for his shoulders upward was taller than any of the people. In other words, he was tall, he was dark, and he was handsome. How about us? I'm glad that I am actually tall and dark and handsome from the shoulder down. Not from the shoulder up. You know, but this is a very unique situation because, you know, that was one of the first things that they saw in, in Saul. He was handsome. He was tall. He had the stature. Maybe that was strategic in a sense because if he would actually stand in the middle of his army, people would actually see him. That's our king, and so let's follow him. But is that the only thing that we consider whenever we actually look for a leader? Wow, artista, you know, this guy is actually an actor or an actress, or you know, is that a good qualification already? As I said, we do not base our qualification only on outward appearance or charisma, but rather the inside of a man, which is called character. And so, the prophet Samuel anointed the first king, you know, Saul, and he took a flask of oil. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. He poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And so, when you look at the purpose of a king, a king is not just meant to be chosen for display. You know, he was not just to go and parade before the, you know, the, the monarchy and show his splendor and his nice robe and his wealth. But really, the purpose of a king is uh, to protect the kingdom from foreign invaders. He's supposed to rule them you know, in, and govern them in peace. And so that's one big task for this neophyte, Saul. Now, if you look at Saul's qualification aside from his physical appearance, what you would notice is, number one, he was humble. He started off as one who is humble. In fact, he was so unsure of himself when he was chosen as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21, Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? So he was actually acknowledging that Hey guys, I'm not from the solid north. I'm not from the powerful south. I'm actually from a small island. You know, somewhere there in the Spratlys. You know, you know, it's even contested right now. You know, I'm not, you know, major in my own eyes. I'm the least in my family, the least in my clan. And it's not my clan, the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then have you spoken to me this way? And he was responding to the way Samuel has actually chosen him as king. How many of you are actually leaders like that? You know, sometimes, you know, actually Pastor Steve called himself, aside from the accidental missionary, he's calling himself the reluctant leader. You know, he found himself in a situation wherein he did not really look for it, but there he was. And he's leading. 
And how many of you are kind of like that? You are kind of reluctant when you lead. Please raise your hand. Yan, you're right. You're very reluctant in raising up your hand, right? So he was not only humble, he's also one who's able to show restraint. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 27, but some of the worthless fellows said, you know, once they anointed him as king, and, you know, his anointing, you know, we don't really have the time to check all the verses, but then they were declaring him as king. They were looking for him, and he was actually hiding behind the baggages and behind the trees, and they were looking for King Saul. And because he was tall, they kind of actually saw his hair. Oh, there he is. And so some of the people were mocking him, and so they said this, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. Though he was officially king already, he held his peace. He could have actually called the army, the infantry division, to actually annihilate them, but he did not. He showed restraint with regards to his power. For Samuel chapter 11, verse 13, when they won a big war, people were actually judging those who actually spoke criticism against him. The situation of 1 Samuel chapter 11 was when a city in Israel, Jabesh Gilead, was attacked by the Ammonites. Basically, Saul was angered by this. And what he did was he took an oxen. He cut off the oxen into salpicao-sized parts. And he distributed the parts into the different tribes of Israel. And this is what the message was. He sent a text message. If you do not come out and join the army to pursue the Ammonites, this is going to be what's happening to you. This small size salpica. How many of you know that the people actually got scared and they went out and fought? 300,000 men volunteered for the army from Israel and about 30,000 men from Judah volunteered. 330,000 total. They won a mighty battle that day. And he said, you know, and people were actually trying to punish those who were criticizing him. And this is what they said. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. How many of you think that Saul was a good king? How many started great? Aside from that, he revered God in 1 Samuel 14, and after his victory with the Philistines, and Saul built an altar to the Lord, it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. He was humble, he showed restraint, he was compassionate, he revered God. That's Saul. But my question is, how can someone so right be so wrong after all? Don't let me sing that song. It's because of this word, pride. Everybody say pride. How many of you are proud? You're proud to be humble. And then sometimes when you talk about pride, pride is not something that we really know that's existing there. You know how it is, right? You will not readily admit that you're proud. Sometimes it will come in different forms and shapes. Pride can actually be arrogance. Do you know people who are arrogant? The moment that he enters the room, ginigino ka na sa lamig. Wow, hangin, grabe. You know, you know, you know people like that, the moment they open up their mouth, wow, they're always talking about themselves. It's me, my, mine, eye, and all the eyes, man. And they're over-exaggerating about their accomplishments and about their business and about their family and whatever. That's arrogance. That's boasting. Another kind of pride is actually false humility. But you celebrate in your heart. 
Different forms of pride. Somebody once said, excuse me for the statement, pride is like bad breath. You don't know you have it unless somebody tells you that. And so it's kind of hard sometimes to detect pride. And so we look at the life of King Saul and learn from his mistake, how he rose to be a king, a fine king, the first king, and what caused his fall. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction. You know, every time there's trouble, there's normally pride involved there. And a haughty spirit before a fall. The true test of leadership really is about power. Abraham Lincoln said this, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. The moment you hold power, something changes. You know, you, you see this, maybe this humble... MMDA guy, you know, he's just, okay. The moment you equip him with a bat, you know what he'd do to the buses? Hey! You know, you, you go! You go! Come on! Go, go, you, know, you move! Move! You know, it's, it's like he's wielding his authority because he's got power. And you actually magnify that in different strata of the government and you see people who were not ready with their character but has been given power to exercise, unfortunately, that's where the trouble comes in. So what are different facets of pride that we can actually see in Saul? Self-reliance is one. Everybody say self-reliance. Second is self-exaltation. Okay, say that. One, two, three. Self-exaltation. And let's say this third. One, two, three. Self-deception. It's all about self. Really, when you look at the root of pride, it's the letter I. The middle of sin is I. And more on that later on, on how it started in the garden. We look at the facets of pride, and the first facet of pride that we can actually see in the life of King Saul was self-reliance. He relied on himself too much that he actually thought he's better than God. You know, sometimes people are like that, that we actually think we know better than God. Lord, I have a better idea. This is a lot better than what you're telling me right now, Lord. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. The order was annihilate, and he actually did another thing. So let's go to the story, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me now to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, or what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now you got to be keen on this text because they went out of Egypt hundreds of years before. During the time of Moses. Remember that? They're already in the promised land. This is already after Joshua. This is after Judges. They're now in the promised land. Before the promised land was Egypt. And so God remembers the sin of the Amalek, of Amalekites. Amalek, by the way, was a descendant of Esau. Remember Esau, the brother of Jacob, the one who sold his birthright 
for what? A bowl of goto or arroscado, something like that. And, you know, he despised, basically that's the description, he despised his birthright, the fact that he was the firstborn child. And he became evil. He was not in the same line as Ishmael, okay, because Ishmael is actually the brother, or, you know, the brother of Isaac. So Amalek, they had the problem with Amalek, even during the time of Moses. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek, or the Amalekites in another translation, and devote to destruction all that they have. It says, do not spare them. Everybody say, do not spare them. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, including Shrek. No, not Shrek, okay? But here we can see that in this particular command, how can God order such a command? It's almost like genocide. How many of you know that God's thoughts are not our thoughts? Yes, we know that He is a compassionate, loving God, but at the same time, He is a holy God. When the limit of His patience has been reached, kind of like what happened in Genesis chapter 6, when He started the world over, and when He had to reset planet Earth, He had to wipe out mankind. You know, we can't understand that. And... I don't dare question God's sovereignty and infinite wisdom because the reality is in Isaiah chapter 55, He said His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. But yet, if you look at it, wow! Is that really possible for God to ask for this? You know, it's really about us trusting in the sovereignty of God and fully understanding that yes, He is sovereign, he is infinite. He is eternal in the way He views things. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows what will happen in the future. Maybe He foresaw the fact that the Amalekites are not going to be a people who would repent. These are vicious people, by the way. When they would worship their gods, they would sacrifice their babies. Can you imagine if it's El Nino, for example, and they want rain, okay, he, they, okay, volunteer. Whose baby's next? Okay, go sacrifice to the fire and then let's believe for rain. I mean, that's how brutal they were. If that is how they treat their people inside, can you imagine the way they would treat their enemies? They are the constant enemies of God's people. And somehow God has made His covenant with His people. And if you look at the history of Amalekites, it all started in Exodus chapter 17 when God was telling Moses, write this on a scroll or something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Joshua is your commander. Make sure that he hears it because I will completely blot out of the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Can you imagine? Buburahin natin sila. It's kind of like, you know, Tagalog movies of those days. Sayo ang tondo, sa akin ang kabili. Something like that, Okay. In this particular case, he's blotting out the memory of Amalek from, from heaven. Not only did the Lord tell this to Moses, but Moses made the same statement to Joshua as they were preparing to attack the people in the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, 
This is Moses now telling Joshua, the people, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail? Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore then, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, it's a promised land, you shall what? Blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget this. Moses was actually telling them about that as he was about to die on Mount Nebo. But yet, Joshua failed to finish the work because the Amalekites were still there. During the time of Judges, the Amalekites were still there. And now it was the chance for King Saul to wipe them out. Are you getting the story? You know, why is this so important? Because God knows the future. He is omniscient. He knew that Two decades after, his next king, King David, would actually face the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, if you will read in the account of, uh, I think, First Kings, or Second Samuel, rather, that David, when they were in Ziklag, the Amalekites attacked them and captured all their families, and they took them as hostages. The Amalekites were still alive and well and kicking. A couple of centuries after, in the land of Persia, you're familiar with the story of Queen Esther? There's this guy who hated the Jews and his name was Haman. If you see him, just say Haman or Haman. He was a distant descendant of King Agag. He was an Amalekite. And in his heart, he wanted to blot out and annihilate all the Jews. That's how bad they were. So God wanted them to be eliminated. Unfortunately, Saul obeyed this particular command half-heartedly. In verse 4, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. So they were about to attack them. Good strategy. Verse 7, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as what? Sure. It's sure na sure. They won the victory. Mission accomplished, which is east of Egypt. Wow! They defeated the Amalekites. What happened next? In verse 8 though, this is where the background music shifted. Suddenly shifted. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. He spared the top honcho of the group and devoted to desecration all the people with the edge of the sword. Basically, Saul carried the instruction half-baked and half-heartedly. Maybe some of us are kind of like that, you know, lest we point a fast finger to Saul. You know, how many of us are like that? Sometimes we receive instruction from our boss, or from our parents. You do this, and then you do it. Not the full thing, but haphazardly. I realize that 
half obedience is not obedience at all. In fact, we're so keen in disciplining our children and we're teaching them how to obey. And when you talk about obedience, you know, the story of one of the children of, uh, I'm not going to mention the pastor, but one time they were having dinner and one of his boys were standing up on the table despite their instruction to sit down. And he said, you better sit down. And he said, with bad attitude, he sat down and he said, I am sitting down on the outside, but I am standing up on the inside. We can actually obey on the outside, but really in our hearts, we're not really obeying the command of God. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs. And what was underlined? And all that was good. Many times when we're completely asked to destroy something, we actually destroy the not good parts. But the things that we can actually benefit from, that we take for ourselves. Isn't that human nature? And yet, when, the, when, when Samuel, the prophet, confronted him, he had a good excuse. Well, actually, I took them so that I can have a very good sacrifice for the Lord, your God. He even said, your God. And he, he didn't say, his God. And this is the excuse in verse 21. The people took... Can you imagine when he was confronted by Samuel? What is this bleating of the sheep that I hear? And the excuse was, well, it was the people. It was not me. The people did it. He was shifting the blame. And he took the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things, the world of destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, not our God, or not my God. And so when Saul disobeyed, he basically relied on his own wisdom and line of reasoning. What he's saying, Lord, there's probably a better way. Lord, this is such a waste. Why do we have to destroy all these sheep and these goats and these oxen? We can actually barbecue them and then sacrifice the rest for your good, for your glory, for your honor, Lord. In fact, what he is saying to God is, Lord, my idea is better than your idea. Hello? That is disobedience and that is so self-reliant. He relied more on what he could actually give to God and what actually God can give to him. Maybe he's thinking, oh, God would be proud of me because I have a bigger sacrifice. Oh, I can go to, you know, the casino and gamble. Anyway, I'm going to tithe anyway. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Many times we think that what we have, an idea that we're used to doing is the best idea. We don't realize that at the end of that path is actually death and destruction. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, very familiar verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. And you know, I realize that we don't monopolize all ideas. You've got to learn how to trust in the Lord every single day. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. When you talk about tithing, it doesn't make sense. 
You know, why will I tithe? You know, why will I give my 10%? It doesn't make sense. Why will I live a pure and holy life when people around there in my company, they're sleeping around? And here I am, I'm still single and I'm still waiting and there's no one nearby and I'm lonely. And why do I have to wait? And so on and so on. There's so many excuses. But really, when you talk about sin, sin is so subtle that you don't know it's there already. It starts very small until it is full grown. It leads to death. You know, someone once said, sin will actually take you farther than what you wanted, where you wanted to go. It will keep you longer where you wanted to stay. It will cost you more than what you wanted to pay. That is what sin will bring to us. And we see this in the life of King Saul because he relied more on himself and disobeyed God. Second, and a quick point, is self-exaltation. There was a self-exaltation. In verse 12 of chapter 15, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. You know, when you look at monuments, who sets up monuments for whom? Normally, we set up monuments for people who are maybe dead, for their honor, for remembrance. And here is Saul. He is very much alive. He couldn't wait for people to set up his own monument. What he did was he set up his own monument. Can you imagine? Wait, a monument? You know, he was actually just so full of himself that he didn't want the people to receive honor. And he was kind of acknowledging, ah, okay, I did it anyway. I'm the one who succeeded. He did not acknowledge the contribution of the other people. Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. A good leader is someone who deflects praise to his people and takes the blame for himself. There's actually a book by Jim Collins entitled Good to Great and he talked about this a while, you know, window and, and uh, mirror that every time there's something positive that is being given to a leader that he actually looks at the window and points to his staff or to his key people, you know, it's not about me, it's about them. And if there's a problem in the company, he doesn't look at the window, but he looks at the mirror and he says, the box stops here. I am the one responsible. And I am the one in charge. And I am the one to be accountable for this. We need leaders like that. Amen. You know, in other nations, whenever there's a problem and a blunder that their department committed, they are quick to resign. And actually, out of honor and delicadeza, they would actually tender their resignation and say, I'm no longer qualified for this job. Can you look for another person to fill my place? Because it's a way of exiting with honor. Not in the Philippines. In here, booking ka na. Wala pa naman Supreme Court eh. There is no limit to what a man can do as long as he doesn't mind who gets the credit. You know, what a beautiful country this will be if people will actually just go and serve. You know? We don't have to put up, we don't have to put up our name there, you know, I built this, I built that. You know? We don't have to put on the chair, you know, 
you gave this tithe, so this chair is Conrad Reyes. This one is Lolit. You know, we, we don't have to do that. It doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. Amen. Ultimately, the glory goes to Him. Can we just give the Lord praise right now? Our founding pastor, Pastor Steve, said something about it. He said, people's praises is like a perfume. It's okay to smell it, but do not swallow it. It's okay to smell and appreciate the fact that, yeah, people are appreciative of your efforts, but don't get intoxicated by it. And the last point I want to share is self-deception. Saul was so overwhelmingly basking in his own victory that he became self-deceived. He refused to acknowledge his sin. He refused to acknowledge his fault. And at the end, he was still trying to justify and honor himself before Samuel and before the people. And so when Samuel was actually confronting him in verse 19, he said, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? You know what the word pounce means? It's kind of like a predator pouncing on a prey. You know, actively attacking, you know. They were just waiting for an opportune time to enrich themselves. They pounced on it. And that should not be theirs. And do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul, verse 20, said to Samuel, But I have obeyed. Booking me. He's still saying he obeyed. Even if he did not obey. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have got on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag. That was not even the instruction. The instruction was what? Kill him. Annihilate. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, this is where we see it again, took the spoils, pointing the blame. And Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings, and then he said, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Blame shifting, passing on the blame, we see that. The concept of pride back in the garden, you know, when Adam was actually ultimately responsible for the sin of his wife, it was him that the Lord was looking for in Genesis chapter 3 when they ate the fruit. And he was hiding. And Adam was being searched by God. He said, Adam, where are you? And I'm here and I'm hiding because I am naked. Did you eat the fruit? Well, the woman that you gave me, I was fine with orangutan and I was walking with the giraffe on cool afternoons and then you gave me this woman and now she's brought me this trouble. So he was passing on the blame to God. It's not my fault, it's your fault and it's the woman's fault. And so God asked Eve, did you eat the fruit? The snake told me to eat it. And so the Lord said, okay, no more hands. Because you did this, you are cursed. And so all of them are cursed. But yet at the very, in the succeeding verses of that particular chapter, eventually Adam said, I'm going to name my wife Eve because he will be known as the mother of the living. Basically that particular statement is actually a statement of pride before the Lord. 
Because Eve meant life giver. And how many of you know that Eve is not the life giver? God is the life giver. What he is saying is, we will survive. We will survive. No matter what happens, we will do this just among ourselves. We see that then. We see that in King Saul. We, still, we see it now. Mudslinging. People shooting, not literally. One another. You see that in the debates. It's fun to watch. You know, you get one, you know, it's kind of like snowball fight. Ultimately, in verse 24, Saul admitted to Samuel, Okay, I give up. I have sinned. Finally, he surrendered. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Whose voice do we hear every day? Do we hear the voice and obey the voice of the people? Or do we hear the voice and obey the voice of God? Be careful who you listen to. You know, the hardest thing to do really is to admit your fault. Right? How many of you know it takes a lot of guts for you to admit that you are wrong? How many husbands do we have here? Can you please raise your hand, husband? How many of you find it easy to ask your wife for forgiveness? Can you please? Am I the only one who's having a hard time asking for forgiveness? But really, it's, it's so difficult to humble yourself and say, Honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. What's even harder is to say sorry to your children. And I think a man, a father, is a real man if he is humble enough to admit that sometimes he can make a mistake and that he needs to apologize before his children. It's not too late to apologize. It's not too late. You can still apologize. It's not too late to say, I'm sorry as well. That's why this should actually be a good habit. If you are married here, can you please just practice that? Honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me, okay? That's an advanced sorry already for something that you will do in the future, okay? Let's move on. Then he said, I have sinned that honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Here is Saul. Still consumed about his reputation and ego. You know, all he's looking for is a good image and a good reputation. Okay, Samuel, huh? just between the two of us. Sorry, huh? But when we get out of this tent, at least, at least, bro, show me some slack. Come on, give me some slack. Show me honor before the people. Parade me as if I'm their king, you know? That we're still body bodies, we're still in good terms. You're my prophet and I'm your king. Can you do that? He was so conscious about titles. He was so conscious about position. He was conscious about his reputation despite the fact that he broke the heart of God. He was more interested in having favor with men rather than favor with God. Let's not follow the example of Saul. In Proverbs 18, verse 12, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Amen. Can we just ask the music team to join me here on stage?
My main point here is there is honor in humility and pride goes before destruction. You know, I'm grateful because we have a king who is an example of humility and his name is Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 to 11, it says, In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the cross. What's, what Saul was lacking, King Jesus made up for and more than enough. He humbled himself. He was the epitome of humility. Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But yet he became obedient to the cross, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And I believe that that is really the outcome of humility. God opposes the proud, but he also gives grace and exalts the humble. That's why Jesus, after his humility, God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and ultimately not for His own glory but to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And that is what we want to seek. I believe if we are praying for leaders who would do what is right and who would walk humbly before the Lord, we need to first be the leaders that God wants us to become. Because the reality is, yes, you're praying for leaders for this nation, but in reality, you are the leader in your own community, in your own sphere of influence. You can influence a lot of people. And as we walk in humility, I believe God will be pleased. Amen. Can we just bow our heads right now? Can you lay your hands on your heart? Can you just lay your hand on your heart? Father God, we just ask that you would give us a new heart. Father, change our heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Lord, I pray that we would walk in humility to admit if we are wrong and if there's any sin that we have done, God, we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, teach us how to be quick in confessing our sins to you, Lord, and not justify and try to make up an excuse, Lord. I thank you that your grace is always sufficient for us, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Father, I thank you that you will impart to us the very heart of Christ that is a heart of humility, Lord. A heart of humility and a heart of obedience. Thank you, Lord. Be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to one of our podcasts. We hope it blesses and inspires you to honor God and make disciples. For more messages like these or to access other resources, please visit victory.org.ph or download the Victory app for free on the iTunes Store or Google Play. If you would like to share a story of God's faithfulness in your life, please visit victory.org.ph slash mystory.